Evening. I have been looking forward to today for a while. I'm a little sad that I have forever missed out on my opportunity to get in the big pulpit, but I do get to watch myself on two TVs, so you win some, you lose some. I really have been looking forward to today. When Brian mentioned to me about a month ago that today might be a good day for Ruth and I to teach a sort of introductory vision message in each of the locations, he asked me uh, at several different times and in several different ways whether the thought of this was inspiring terror at a soul level. And I think he rightly expected a fair bit of fear and intimidation, but let me tell you, okay, there's been some cold sweats, there's been a healthy dose of fear, but once you have been regularly thrust in front of a group of West End teenagers, even the intimidatingly cool evening service, not so intimidating anymore. So I'm excited, I'm happy to be here. For those of you who maybe don't know me, my name is Laura, I'm from Northern Ireland. I don't destroy the English language because of choice, but because of where I'm from. I've been living in the West End of Glasgow since I moved here in 2010 for university, bar a brief stint in Canada, and I've been working for the church for a couple of years as a youth pastor. I've got to hang out with the teenagers, pretend I'm cool, have fun on Friday nights, put on some youth productions. It has been a generally great time, and I've just recently transitioned into the new role here, so it has been lots of fun. I'm currently riding the waves of that new adventure right in front of your eyes, so... Has anyone else, on that note, has anyone else had a bit of a crazy 2019 so far? Anyone? I can sort of see your hands, but feel free to heckle. Um, I personally can't mentally catch up with the fact that it's the 7th of April today. And I don't know whether I'm just old now and this is how time works, but my year has felt a little bit like, I don't know if any of you used to play um, Crash Bandicoot, but there's a level, I think it's like level three, where he is running down a never-ending hill and there's just this massive snowball of doom that's coming after him. Now, the snowball of my 2019 has not been a snowball of doom, it's been lots of great things, but it has been large and fast and relentless and fear-inducing at times. So 2019 has been a bit of a whirlwind for me, and part of that has been because at the start of the year, I reached a pretty significant uh, crossroads moment in my own life, and at that, when I tried to, trying to make a mega like life-altering decision, um, for me, is quite a difficult thing. So I was as desperate as I have ever been to hear God speak. Um, if you know me at all, you'll know that I can't make basic decisions. Like I was in McDonald's the other day and trying to decide between three chicken selects and five chicken selects, like nearly set me reeling. <laughs> Give me more than three brunch options on a menu and like I'm stumped. But trying to make a decision that was gonna like potentially alter um, my life for a long time, then I need to hear God speak on that. I'm sure maybe lots of you can relate to feeling similarly if you've ever had to make a big decision. And in this season of trying to discern God's will for my life and my next steps, I find myself thinking of the story of the burning bush often. And I can hear myself in my head. I said to several people along the way things like, um, yeah, like I think I might be hearing God on this, but I just haven't had my burning bush moment yet. <laughs> because what I was praying for was like, you know, ground-shaking, audible, booming voice of the majestic God on high. And if not that, or preferably that, and like Jesus physically manifest walking into my flat at night <laughs> to tell me this is what you should do and this is how. And as I've reflected on this season in my life and started to think about the season that we're in as a church, as we try to discern, okay, God, like, what have you got for us in this next season of Rehope? I have revisited the story of Moses and the burning bush, the story that arguably sets into motion the most epic story of the Old Testament, of God freeing the Israelite people from slavery. 
So let's read it together. It seems like a good place to start. So I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. If you have your own Bibles, please feel free to follow along. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen. So it says this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So as far as biblical characters go, I am a massive Moses fan. My Moses appreciation started young when I watched The Prince of Egypt, that feat of cinematic wonder that was released in 1998. If you are too young or you've been living under a rock and you've not seen it, I would 10 out of 10 recommend that you go and watch it. It is, if you can imagine, um, adding together the quality of La La Land and The Greatest Showman, based off the Bible, which obviously we love here, and then throw in a couple of Mariah Whitney key changes, it is honestly in my top five favorite movies of all time. It is great. So my appreciation for Moses started with the Prince of Egypt and only grew as I got stuck into Bible read-through and discovered that he is this wonderfully insecure, imperfect character who God uses. Now, back to the Prince of Egypt. There is, in the movie, a stunning burning bush scene where Moses is just going about his business as a shepherd when he's interrupted by this sort of ethereal-looking blue-purpley bush and Hans Zimmer's choruses are singing in the background and the majestic, booming voice of God comes at him in a perfectly crisp English accent and calls his name and tells him what he should do. Now, I'm not going to go into the theological accuracy of the Prince of Egypt this evening, although I would argue that it's actually pretty good. <laughs> but as I reread this story this week, it struck me as actually really quite a different story in essence. And there are a few things about this iconic Bible moment that I'd love us just to think about a wee bit more this evening as we think about ourselves individually and also where we are as a church and where we're maybe going so it's a well-known story, and there are countless things that God could reveal to us through it. Um, I just have a couple of questions I'd like us to consider based off this passage. But first, let's just look at the context. 
So to set the scene, if you are familiar with the story, you might know that Moses grows up as a Hebrew in the Egyptian royal household after being miraculously saved from death as an infant. He runs away to a place called Midian after he kills an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. He has a life in Midian, he settles there, he has a wife, he has kids there. And where we pick up, he has spent 40 years in exile there already. And where we started reading, we see that God hears the cries of the Israelite people and he's concerned about them. At Moses' time in history, God's saving work was focused on the Israelite people, but now because of Jesus, God's offer of freedom is for everyone. No one is excluded. We are here because no one is excluded from his love or concern. First Timothy 2 tells us that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So God was doing a saving work then. God's doing a saving work now. What questions might this passage raise for us then? The first question I think it raises for me is, can you smell smoke? We read in Exodus 2.25, God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And then immediately after we read, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, to the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Moses was going about his day-to-day business when something strangely supernatural happened and the course of his life changed. We hear about God's concern and it's immediately followed in the text by now Moses. Can you smell smoke? If you were to take away Moses' name and insert your own, wherever you are right now, whatever your day-to-day looks like, is there a godly fire burning somewhere that's waiting for your attention? Now, maybe this is super obvious to everyone else in the world, but when I used to think about this story, I used to think like the dramatic center of the story was the fact that there was a bush spontaneously burning. And then I lived in the wilderness of Canada for like one summer and they could not stop the bushes from burning. Like bushes were burning left, right and center. And suddenly you think, okay, wait, this is in the desert. (laughs) It was probably hot. It maybe wasn't all that strange that there was a bush burning. But what is strangely supernatural about the story is that although the bush is burning, it's not being consumed by the flames. So a swift glance or even a quick look from Moses, and actually he wouldn't have seen anything weird at all. It wasn't that it was burning and it was burning bright blue, so immediately he thinks, oh, something's happening here. No, it was not burning up. Exodus 3.3 says that when Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up, he thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why it does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to Moses from within the bush. The order here, I think, is really important. God doesn't call to get Moses' attention. God does something subtly godlike. Moses pays attention, and then God calls him. For Moses to notice the bush wasn't burning will have required him to stop for a second and watch and wait and see And then when he does notice that something strange is happening and he thinks, okay, what is going on here? His response is curiosity. And I've been challenged this week to think like, okay, first, do I stop long enough to see what God might be doing? Do I stop ever to see what God might be doing? And secondly, if I did sense that maybe something was happening that might have been supernatural or might be from God, do I, am I the sort of person who approaches it or overlooks it? Moses approaches, and that's what prompts God to speak to him. 
the Old Testament doesn't really do unnecessary details. So when it says, when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to Moses from the bush, that must be significant. Moses didn't need to be close to God so that God could make his voice heard. God actually says, don't come any closer when he's got close enough. But he's waiting for Moses to approach. God then calls Moses by name twice. So we could assume that maybe uh, God's calling to get his attention in a similar way to how he did with the young boy Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel to wake him up and to get his attention. But we know that God already has Moses' attention. He's waiting for his response. So if you're waiting or if I'm waiting to hear God call me by name before I go somewhere or before I do something in the next season of my life or the next season of this church, maybe I need to consider, okay, what? what are you already doing, God? Is there something you're already doing and you're waiting for my attention? You may be waiting for me to approach. What is Moses' response to God? It's here I am. So has God got any fires burning in your life, inviting your attention and awaiting your here I am response? So what does God say to Moses? When God speaks to Moses, he says something that is simultaneously entirely in keeping with his character and entirely terrifying. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. All good so far. God sees, God cares, God's paying attention. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Great, sounds good, good plan. There's gonna be milk and honey. Then he says, so now go. I am sending you to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Plot twist. God seemingly sees no contradiction in saying, I have come down to rescue, and soon I go, I'm sending you. The entire story of scripture, from our creation in God's likeness, to Jesus as God, God in human flesh, to Paul's teaching um, on the church as being Christ's body in the world, seems to tell a similar story of God being a God who goes and does and loves and saves through people. So God asks Moses to go. Now Moses, understandably, as we might, freaks out a little bit. He has a crisis of self-doubt to which I can completely relate. And he asks questions that are familiar to me. They might be familiar to you too. He says, who am I that I should go do this? And what if they ask me what you're like? What do I tell them? God's response to Moses freaking out is to reveal his name to him, to reveal who he is. And in a similar way, our first step, if we want to hear God's voice and walk confidently into what he has for us, our first step is to know him well. To know the God who sends us, to know the God who goes with us. I think we do this by getting the basics right first. So that's things like uh, becoming immersed in God's word. We do that here through things like Bible read-through groups. Um, it's prayer, joining with God's people to pray through things like pre-service prayer, praying by yourself, uh, by having like regular time with Jesus. It's by taking a Sabbath, actually taking a day each week to rest and be with God. So God reveals who he is to Moses and Moses continues to have his crisis of self-doubt. He asks questions like, what if people don't believe me? What if people don't listen to me? I think those questions are our questions if we desire to go into a post-Christian context where most people do not follow or love the God of the Bible, what if people don't believe me? What if people don't listen to me? 
So how does God respond to Moses and how might he respond to us if we feel similar amounts of fear? He says, what is that in your hand? And that's my second question I'd like us to think about tonight. What's in your hand? For Moses, it was a staff, which was a simple, normal symbol of both where he was and who he was, his position geographically and historically and his identity and role within it. As a core team, we have begun to think and dream a little bit about what is in our hand as a church here in the West End. Like, who are we and where are we and how might God want to use these things to do miraculous things and lead people in the city back to him? And things we've started to think about a bit are, firstly, our proximity to the university and to student accommodation. So if you know the story of this church at all, you will know that we have been praying for years for more space and we've been pretty open-handed about our location because of that, thinking, okay, maybe, maybe it'll be a building in the city center, maybe it'll be somewhere else in the West End, maybe it'll be a bigger building somewhere, maybe it'll be a warehouse. But we've had to be open-handed knowing, okay, God, like, you could lead us somewhere else and we will go. But now we know we are staying here. Like, we've invested here, we've burst through a wall, we've painted the walls white. <laughs> this is our home for the foreseeable future. And our location near to the University of Glasgow and to the copious amounts of student accommodation that's popping around everywhere in, in Pardic is significant because we have an opportunity here to reach the next generation and raise up Jesus followers within that generation who are then going to go impact a group of people who have largely turned their back on God. And we have an opportunity to hold up an alternative vision of human flourishing to the Freshers' Week manifestos of drink as much as you can, do whatever you want, and somehow find happiness within yourself. We have an opportunity to say there's more, that Jesus' offer of grace is a more captivating invite to respond to. And we wanna take seriously the privilege that it is to meet young adults at the crossroad moments of their life because university is an incubator that will form you if there isn't something else forming you. How can we do this well? Has God given you a heart for the next generation? Is God already doing things among young adults here in this city that he's waiting for us to approach? Number two, what's in our hand as a church? Our neighbors. So every week in pre-service prayer, we take a moment and we face out towards the city and we pray for our local community and we pray for Greater Glasgow. And we are surrounded by people in this area who literally live like a stone's throw from us who do not know about the life-transforming love of Jesus. You may have noticed we have a new core team here. Part of that core team, we have Dave and Shannon Crawford. We, um, they're gonna be looking after how we do evangelism in this next season. And last time I met up with them to talk about this, um, they talked about our spheres of influence and I found it helpful. Um, they talked about how as a church, geographically, we have a sphere of influence here just because of where we are on the map. But then also, for each of us, we have a sphere of influence because of where we've been placed, whether that's in our block of flats, or in a team, or in a club, or in university, or in work, whatever that is, we have a sphere of influence. And we want to learn and grow in our desire to go and make disciples in both those spheres in this next season. What's that gonna look like? What's it going to involve? I don't know yet, but we're excited to see where God leads us. Number three is creativity. 
So there's a Jewish theologian called Jonathan Sachs, and he coined the term creative minority in describing how God's people have historically not only survived in exile, but actually thrived in exile by not immersing themselves in the culture around them or totally separating themselves from the culture around them, but by creatively interacting with it to influence it and bring about change. We're a church full of creative people, of musicians and makers and writers and artists, and whether we are reaping so queens or quite the opposite, we believe we are made in the image of a creative God who's in the process of restoring his creation. And as a church here in the West End of Glasgow, we believe we have an opportunity to not just be overtaken by the culture around us and not to shut our doors on the culture around us, but to somehow work out how to creatively communicate God's grace to a generation that desperately needs it. That's just a hint. That's just the start as we think about our heart for this location. And it's not an exhaustive list. This is going to be an ongoing story that we're all part of. And it's all very good thinking about where we are and who we are, but as we think about this for our church and for ourselves, we must consider two things. First, what's in my hand? But most importantly, what's God asking me to do with it? It's only when Moses follows God's specific instructions and throws his staff down that God transforms it and does the miraculous thing. It's actually only when he lets it out of his hands that God uses it for his glory before it's just a staff. And the invitation for us today is to stop and consider again in this next era, like what's in my hand, God, and what would you like me to do with it? As a side note, if you would like to grow in your confidence that you are hearing God's voice, I can't recommend the prayer course enough. But that's by the by. As a final encouragement, Moses is not sent alone. When he freaks out, the very first thing God says to him is, I will be with you. God goes with us better than Moses. We have the spirit of the living God in us now. And when Moses doesn't stop freaking out, God in his immense kindness sends Aaron to help him in really specific ways. So we are invited to pick up what is closest to us, to pick up what has been given to us, to pick up otherwise normal human earthly things and set them down before a God who can do the God-like thing in his ongoing story of redeeming the world. So with God before us, with people around us, and with a generation looking for hope all around us. What is in your hand tonight? I have a few challenges for us uh, to think about before I finish. So challenge number one is check the basics. Do I feel confident in my knowledge of the God who sends me? How am I doing in that way? Is there a step I need to take today? Whether that's maybe something like, okay, I, I want to read the Bible more. I want to be more immersed in God's word. Maybe I'll join a Bible read-through group. Do I want to come along to pre-service prayer and pray with other people? Uh, do I never pray alone? Do I maybe want to set aside some Jesus time and do that more? Am I taking a weekly Sabbath? How am I doing? Challenge number two is pray and ask God or ask others to pray with you. Jesus, is there anything you're inviting me into in the next era of our church? And finally, consider what is in your hand. Is there time or a talent or a possession or influence that God is inviting you right now to set down before him? Is there something in your hand that God is saying, throw this down before me and watch me transform it, watch me use it? We're gonna move into a time of worship and response. Um, I'm just gonna invite Brian back up and he's gonna explain how we can do that.